0: This morning, we are continuing our study in the book of 1 Timothy, and we will wrap up chapter 3 this morning. And, you know, as we, as we get into chapter 3, and we've just moved through uh, two pretty interesting sections as Paul has led us into a discussion of overseers, elders, and then moving from there, he moved on to talk about deacons. And so he's been talking about all these things, but he really centers today, and he's, he's talking more on our... Our behavior in church. Now, I remember back when I was, you know, five, six growing up, and I would sit in the pew with my parents, and my dad was really big on, on behavior in church, and there were certain things that were just kind of no-goes for him, certain things that he, he would not tolerate. And he would get what my mom refers to as the chicken lips anytime you did it, and he was just and just I mean it it drove him up the wall. And, and among these things, first of all, was you cannot chew gum in church. That was that was a non-starter for him. I think largely it was probably tied to the amount of smacking I did when I chewed gum. But anytime I chewed gum, or one of my friends gave me gum, the chicken lips would come out, and I would know that after church it was on. I mean, it was it was not a good thing. Uh, there was no talking. When the, when the preacher was talking, it was like, you know, hey, look, you can talk while the music is going on. You don't read so good anyway, so just talk, sing, watermelon, over and over again, whatever you want to do. But when the preacher starts talking, it's time for you to be quiet. And if I wasn't quiet, I mean, the chicken lips are just back again. And so, and then uh, coupled with that, and, and my mom was kind of working against him. My dad traveled a decent amount, and whenever he wasn't there, she let me sleep in church, but whenever he was there, it was sit up and pay attention, and so I would start to drift off, and, and the chicken lips would come out, and I would quickly have to wake up, and that, that's kind of how that worked, and occasionally, I would, I would talk not to fall asleep, and I would chew gum not to fall asleep, and it was, just, it was just a bad thing over and over and over again, but as I thought about this week, and just kind of wondered, you know, I wonder what people think of when they think of behavior in church, and so often, I'll just kind of Google that phrase, you know, behavior in church, and there's actually a wiki article on how to behave in church and it was written from the perspective of hey look you've never been to church your boss asks you somebody asks you to go to church this is what it's going to be like for you prepare yourself it's going to be different but this is what it's like so the first thing says hey look you're going to want to arrive 10 to 15 minutes early and i'm thinking this person has clearly not been to church that's writing this article says, so you want to arrive 10 to 15 minutes early, you're going to need to find the lay of the land, figure out where to go, and, and just kind of follow people, which is not going to creep anybody out, but just kind of follow people and follow the herd of where they go. And so, arrive 10 to 15 minutes early. It said, you know, as far as dress goes, every church dresses a little bit differently. And so, that's not super helpful for the article. Maybe you could do a drive-by one Sunday morning and see what people look like coming out. You're like, oh man, I see shorts and suits. This is just, I don't know what to do with that. I'm going to go somewhere in the middle. And so it got down through the end and talked about, you know, the lyrics would probably be on a screen, just sing along, even if you don't know the song, and while the guy's preaching, just kind of sit there and take notes, you know, write, write, oh yeah, that's good, that's good, this is good stuff, and just take notes, as it's going down through. Now what I thought was the most peculiar bit of advice given in this whole list, was he gets to the end, and he gives some, some decent advice, you know, pay attention, greet everybody, he said there would be a greeting time, it's, this person's probably been in a Protestant church, it gets to the end, and I don't know what type of church the, the, the author of this went to, but the last piece of advice he gave, well, gave the person was, uh, FYI, no smoking during the service. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> if you're here today for the first time, we it's not really a written rule, it's just kind of an understood, don't light up in the service. So, But as Paul goes in and is talking about what behavior in the church is like, it's, it's radically different. He's not going into discussions of things, of, of how we dress or, or talking during the preaching section he, he's looking at something that is something he has already addressed thus far in the letter so let me read these three verses and then we'll, we'll catch back up to speed okay starting in verse 14 Paul writes and he says I hope to come to you soon but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God he further describes it he says which is the church Of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Man, we see the gospel laid out from the incarnation to the glorification there in 16. It is a beautiful, beautiful passage. But as he starts this passage, Paul writes, he says, look, I hope to come to you soon. Paul was was not in Ephesus where Timothy was. We're not quite sure where he was. We think by reading the beginning of the letter that he is somewhere in Macedonia. That he's somewhere in Macedonia. He can't come, and so he's been writing Timothy precepts. He's been giving him instruction for how the church should be set up, right? How the church should run things, what different officers in the church would look like, what a service might look like. But he recognizes that he may not be able to come. He recognizes that there is a delay. And so his intention is to come. His intention is to return to Ephesus, to the city that he spent a couple of years ministering in. He knows the people. The people know him. His desire, his heart, has been on going back there. But Paul, just like you and I, doesn't have an unveiled view of the future. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And so he writes... And he tells Timothy what his hope is, but the reality is that he will likely not be able to make it. And he tells Timothy this. He says, I have written these things to you so that you may know how to behave in the household of God. Well, this begins to prompt a question in our mind. It begins to prompt, okay, well, so you've written things so that we might know how to behave, but Paul He goes in and he says, look, I've written you something very precise. Not just, hey, look, you need to figure out how to behave on your own. You guys figure that out and everything will be fine. But he says, no, I have written these things to you. Timothy, so that you may know how to give instruction so that people in the church might know how to behave. Now, this is what we do with that. We look back at those things that Paul has most immediately told us in the near view. You'll remember that chapter two began, and it is just this beautiful picture that, that Jesus died for all. It begins, and he says, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. That the church would be a praying church. That it would that it would desire to see men and women have their lives transformed by the gospel." Paul goes on and he starts talking about the power of the gospel. He starts talking about why Jesus died, for whom Jesus died. He says that it is God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He gives some theology. He says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between man and God. The man, Jesus Christ, verse 6 of chapter 2, who gave himself as a ransom for who? For all. For all which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul's saying, look, the church needs to be evangelistic. The church needs to be caught up with this idea that that other people are more important than ourselves, that we need to carry this message of hope and salvation to everyone we encounter, whether it be at Walmart, Brookshire's, whether you shop at at Save-A-Lot, or you drive all the way to Rockwall, just so you can go to Target, that the gospel needs to go forth with you to those places. That it is not simply for your gatherings in one place, but it is for every place that you go that the church would be evangelistic in mind. Moving through chapter 2, Paul gives us distinctions of what men should do and what women should do. For men, he says, I want you to lift up holy hands in prayer, and he, he, he characterizes it in this way. He says, without quarreling and without anger. He says, look, don't find yourself quarreling with those around you don't find yourself bent in anger towards those around you when he comes to women he says look dress modestly don't find yourself conforming in dress and behavior to those around you to in the culture around you but allow the gospel to weigh in on how you dress to, to, to this group in Ephesus Paul was saying look don't dress like a prostitute dress like a woman of God when he goes in and talks about the way that these women are dressed, it's a clear indication that he's saying, don't dress like a prostitute. If you look in the mirror and say, man, Julia Roberts could have worn this in Pretty Woman, don't wear that. Don't dress like a prostitute. Allow the gospel to even affect the way that you dress. And he talks about teaching. He says, he says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Paul is referencing 1 Timothy 5, 17 in the office of elder. The office of elder is, is restricted to a man, and Paul writes that, that an elder is worthy of double honor who finds his work in teaching and who rules well, right? And so Paul offers us there a shorthand. He's making connection to those things, which will come later. And then he moves into chapter 3, and he, he discusses the two offices of the church. And within the church, we have the laity, which is not an office. You just get to be. And then we have deacons, and we have elders, We have deacons and elders. It is split. And so he moves first into the office of overseer elder, and he lists qualifications for this job, qualifications for this office. He says, look, don't just find some idiot on the street that speaks really well and entertains you. Find somebody that this is what their life conforms to. That when you think about their life, and he uses this head term, he says that they are beyond reproach, that everything about them in their life is bent towards the gospel. He says, this is what you want. This is who you want as an overseer, as a shepherd of your soul. You want somebody that's beyond reproach. And as a matter of distinction between the office of elder and the office of deacon, he said this person must be able to teach. This person must be able to stand and refute errant doctrine. This person must be able to stand and speak to the lies and the heresies that pop up in culture and even pop up within the church. And they must be able to squash those things because they are a rebellion against God. Moving to deacons, he describes an individual who is dignified. Using, again, a head term, he said this person must be dignified. And he goes through and describes really somebody who we would probably say is a gentle soul. This is the type of person that if you are sick or you have a loved one who is sick, you want in your home you want this person in there offering advice. You want this person in there just loving on your family. This person is working in support of the ministry of the church. They're not working in opposition to that. The word deacon means servant. And so Paul says, I've written these things. I've, I've talked to you about the evangelistic nature. I've talked to you about gender roles. I've talked to you about elders. I've talked to you about deacons. You, know, you need to do these things so that you know how to behave In church, you need to know how to behave in the household of God. It's interesting that Paul addresses the church first as the household of God. You know, too often we find churches that that people go around and, oh, you know, this is mine, and I gave the money for this, and this over here is mine, and, well, you can't change this thing. You can't change this because my, my dear old granny, God rest her soul, she gave the money for this, and if you if you change it, it's dishonoring to her memory. It's dishonoring to everything she's ever done. And every time I look at that, I see dear old Granny's face. You know what? Granny doesn't own that. Like you might have given every single dime to buy that to put her name on it, but but this is whose it is. It is the household of God. Amen. It's the household of God. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to your Granny's memory. It doesn't matter how much money you gave, how much sweat equity you poured into it, it is the household of God. This is a further reminder that as we engage in the household of God, we should see one another as brothers and sisters of the king. Right? There's, no, there's no level and ranking in there. We are all a part of the family of God, and you know who's the head of that? It's not me. It's Jesus. We're all a part of the household of God and and we are all co-laborers in this endeavor to advance the gospel here at Ridgecrest and around our community and around the world. But you know who's ahead of that? It is God. Man, that's a distinction that we cannot miss because if we fail on that, then you begin to make much of me, you begin to make much of the deacons, and we cannot shoulder that burden. We will fail you. Any minister that you lift up, he will fail you over and over again. Now, this isn't me trying to help you get ready so that when I fail you, said, well, he well, he did warn us. But it's an indication that, man, I am fallible. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to do things that aren't right. We're going to disagree, but we do so with the understanding that God is the one that's over this church. We need to have our authority structure set right. He says that we need to know how to behave in the household of God. And then moving on he says the household of God is the church of the living God Man, this is something that just, just smacked of complete and utter rebellion to everybody else in Ephesus Paul wrote and he said this is this is where you guys go to church you go to the church of the living God everybody else in Ephesus is tied up in idol worship they had their shrines to, to this Roman deity and, and, and you know in a in a figurine to to that Roman deity They might even have some figurine in their house. They would go into the the temple to offer sacrifices to the God that they chose to worship. And they would do these things, and they would try and have conversations with them, but what they would find is over and over again, my little figurine isn't responding. A little figurine that I would pour blood or, or wine or grain on top of, and I would do these things, and I would offer up sacrifices. I would give people over to this. This deity, man, it couldn't respond to me. It had no power and authority in my life. It was nothing but superstition. And Paul writes, this is the distinction between you and between everybody else in your community. Their gods are dead. Their gods never lived. But your God, he is living and he is powerful and he is transforming your life and the life of everybody else in your community. And you think we don't live in that same setting today? See, the idols and the gods that we have in our community are so much better hidden than those. They're not as fragile. They're not easily smashed into bits. They're not housed in temples that we can go in and destroy. But we find people in our community that that worship the God of money. That everything they do in their lives is found to put them in submission to that God. That they give themselves holy over to it. They work more hours than is healthy. They give everything in their lives, their family, they give up everything in submission to that God. Advancement. You know, one of the gods that we see most often evidence in the church, and this, this almost seems counterintuitive, is the God of family. We're so working hard to protect our family, to do all of these things, that we give everything that we've, we've taken God down off the pedestal, that we've taken our family and put them up there, our children and put them up there, our spouses and put them in the place where God deserves to be. I mean, this is a hard thing to hear that as we look at this that God demands our complete and utter allegiance. The way that he writes it is this, that our love for him, when compared to our love for family, we should almost hate our family compared to our love for God. That is such a hard word to hear. That's such a difficult, difficult thing that we repeatedly see ourselves loving and living for our families. Are we supposed to love our families? Absolutely. But our love for them should pale in comparison to our love for God. Lest they become an idol, lest they become something greater than God in our lives. Paul said that we're in the church of the living God. He goes on and he describes that church as two things. He says, it is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. It is a pillar and a buttress of the gospel. So you begin to think of things that that we work to be a pillar, to be a support of. This is the word picture that Paul's using here. Across the top we have the gospel, which is the truth. And then under the support of that we have different pillars that come off of it that stand to support the gospel that aid in supporting the gospel and you think about what these different things are and you think about how we treat these different pillars now if one of these pillars happens to be that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, as we read in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, 39 Jesus speaking to the Pharisees he says in the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself That as we find ourselves continually giving ourselves over to the good and to the benefit of everybody around us, we are upholding, we are supporting a pillar of the gospel. But then we ask ourselves, as we evaluate our lives in the way that we spend our time and our money, I mean, when's the last time you did something unselfishly for someone else, not a family member, not somebody you know from high school, just someone else? When's the last time you found yourself engaged in doing something solely so that someone else would benefit, so that you might not even be recognized as the one who provided that support? Jesus hangs the truth on two things, that we would love the Lord our God and that we would love our neighbor as ourself. But when we don't abide by loving our neighbor, we walk over to this pillar and we say, Look, you're not all that valuable. You're not all that necessary. And we begin to chip away. We begin to fatigue it. We begin to distress it. So then we move on to something else and we say, well, you know, that's not such a big deal. That's not such a big deal. In fact, I can live however I want to live because God is so gracious and he'll forgive anything I do. And we find people that are pursuing the God of happiness. They're pursuing doing everything they want to do when they want to do it, how they want to do it. And this is the person that when you walk in and you say, "You know, I've heard you and your spouse are going through a divorce. Why do you want to do that? I'm not happy anymore. I just just want to be happy. You know the good news, Matt, is that God will forgive me this. We go into that and we go into other things that we know to be sin. We find ourselves engaged with relationships of women that aren't our wives or men that aren't our husbands, and we enter into that with this understanding, God's going to forgive me. This is just something I need for me right now. This is just something I need to satisfy me right now. And Paul says this to that in Romans 6.1. Speaking to this very idea, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Paul offers the strongest refutation of that possible he says that is completely opposed to the gospel how can you who have died to sin choose to live in it again this is what we talked about at easter that we are giving ourselves back over to a defeated foe when we choose to sin we walk over to that pillar we say this is this grace afforded to me Man, I don't really want this grace. It is getting in the way of doing what I want to do. We start to chip away. We start to abuse this grace. And we put a burden on it that it is not intended to bear. And we continue to chip away at the pillars that support this thing. And then we say, you know what? Because grace is so good, great, and wonderful, I'm just going to live however I want to. My life, if you were to look at it, we would say that your life is not a representation of the gospel. There's no fruit in your life that you're not loving your spouse. You're not engaging in a gospel-transformed life, and you're living as a complete devotee of hedonism. You live in such a way to do everything that you want to do, to celebrate everything that you want to be. And this is what Paul says to that again. This is what Paul says our life should be like. He says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. Good, acceptable and perfect. It's this thing that Man, we see our peers doing exactly what they want to do. We see those people that we see on Sundays doing exactly what they want to do. And so we find ourselves engaged in this same struggle that we too want to give ourselves over to our delights. We don't want to live our lives as acceptable sacrifices. We don't want to live as living pillars in support of the gospel. So we walk over to this pillar and say, look, I don't need you. I don't want you. You are a harness that I'm going to throw off. We begin to chip away with every decision we make. We begin to to move away with every action we take. To Finally, we we come over here. And we've, we've completely bailed, we've completely rebelled on all these things, systematically moving away, and we finally come to the exclusivity of Christ. That Christ is the only one that may save us. And we look at that and you say, man, that is so harsh. That is so restricted. And I've got friends that are good people and they are engaged in in humanitarian efforts and they give all of their money away to the poor and they spent last year in Africa drilling water wells and they do all of this stuff not because they want people to celebrate them but because they love people. Matt, they they just love people. They find themselves engaged in giving everything away for other people. And we look at the exclusivity of Jesus. We say, how does that work for that person? Isn't there some value? Isn't there some good found in their works? Isn't there some redemption in their works? And Paul, or we see this in Acts. We see that in Acts 4.12, Luke writing, he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by by which we must be saved. You see, as we come to this last pillar and we look at it and we say that surely there must be some other way other than Jesus, and we chip away. We find excuses, we find ways around this truth, we find accommodations to make the gospel seem more palatable, seem more accepting for those we encounter in community. As we chip away, what we find is this thing comes crashing down. It comes crashing down. But what we don't realize is what we've been abusing this whole time with all of these understandings and all the ways that we've been living our lives is in direct contradiction to something that could have saved us, this whole misfortune. Paul, writing in 2 Timothy, said this of the Word of God. He said that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, that the person of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. Further, we read in Hebrews 4.12, we read in Hebrews 4.12, that the word of God is able to pierce us to our very being. That we are able to be transformed by this. It says, the word of God is the living and active. It is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart speaking of god it said, no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him we must give an account as we go through and we engage in this lifestyle we are actively denying that this book has authority that the bible has authority over our lives. You see, if we would give ourselves to submission to the Word of God, we might find our lives living in accordance to that Word. See, this isn't merely a collection of sayings. It's not something meant to make us feel better about ourselves or our predicaments, but it is something given for life-saving, not life-enhancement. The Bible and the Word of God isn't given so that you might find a better parking spot and a prettier spouse, but it is something given to save your soul from hell. And we function as a support, as a pillar and a buttress of the truth. But you know what's a really comforting thought? Is that God forbid Ridgecrest close its doors. God forbid every church in Greenville close their doors because they bail on the gospel. They decide that it's too restrictive, they decide that it's not palatable, palatable enough, and so we trend everything towards just attracting anybody and everybody, and we absolutely bail on the gospel and we close our doors. You see, we serve as a help and support of the gospel. The gospel is not on us. But God is the one who institutes the gospel, who gives the gospel. God is the one who by his strength, which is all powerful, unconquerable, he is the one upholding the gospel and he entrusts us with a heavy responsibility of giving it away as quickly and as often as possible. Amen? We are to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And getting to verse 16, Paul writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed, we confess, is Christ who has come into the world to save sinful man. And he says these things about Jesus. He says he was manifested in the flesh. We studied about this in Philippians, that, that Jesus exists eternally with God. But at one point in time, he comes down and he takes the shape of a servant. That he entered into this world as a child that he grew and experienced many of the things that you and I grow and experience. He was manifested into flesh. That God interjected himself in the flesh into the time stream of humanity. That he was vindicated by the Spirit. Man, this is an indication that, that even though Jesus was crucified, even though he died at the hands of his creation, that the Holy Spirit is the power of God, and it resurrected him from the dead, that the grave could not hold him. And he was seen by angels. Both the proclamation prior to his birth, at his death, at his glorification, and at his ascension, the angels see and sing over Jesus as a demonstration to us that every power on heaven and on earth proclaims his goodness and his greatness. We see that Jesus is proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. Man, after the ascension of Jesus and we see Pentecost and we see all of these amazing things happen and the word about Jesus is spreading near and it's spreading far. And it's proclaimed and we see lives transformed and finding people living in conformity to the gospel. Something we still see today something we struggle with as we sit here week in and week out and we, 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 we see the gospel go out and we wonder, is it, is it even making a difference? Are we even seeing lives transformed? But Then we hear such encouraging stories. We see such encouragement from what it is when a life is transformed by the power of the gospel, when a marriage is saved by the power of, a, of the gospel, when a family is saved by the power of the gospel. It is believed on in the world and it is still believed on today. And finally, see that Jesus is taken up in glory from whence we await his return. You see, but you turn and you ask yourself, we know what a church should look like. We know that it is on us to behave in the household of God, but why, what power are we to do that? See, the power that enables us to behave in the household of God, not to gossip, not to complain when we don't get our way, not to say it's my way or the highway, and to find ourselves living for nothing but the advance of the gospel, the power that enables us to do that is godliness in our lives by the sacrifice of Christ. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. That is, godliness is the overwhelming characteristic of our lives. We find ourselves able to obey, able to behave in the church of God, not because we're good, great, and wonderful, but because we realize we're not. Not because we're perfect, not by a long stretch, but because we realize that He is perfect and Him living in our lives, Jesus living in our lives, transforms everything about us. He who was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory, lives as Lord and lives as Savior of your lives, and he demands godliness from you and from me. Let me pray for us.